Good morning to each and every one. Let's turn back to John chapter 17. You'll be happy to know I was up here earlier this morning looking for crickets. I, I guess I misidentified that little critter last week. It wasn't a grasshopper, it was a cricket. But uh, you'll be happy to know I didn't find any up here this morning, so we shouldn't be in for any, any surprises. Uh, John chapter 13. I'm not going to take the time to read the entire text this morning. We heard it publicly read last week, but let me at the very least read for us verses 12 through 17. So again, that's John chapter 13, reading verses 12 through 17. When he, that's Jesus, had washed their feet and put on his outer garments and resumed his place, he said to them, Do you understand what I have done to you? You call me teacher and Lord, and you are right, for so I am. If I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example that you also should do just as I have done to you. Truly, truly, I say to you, A servant is not greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. If you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. If you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. I want to begin by giving you a fourfold description of something. You try to figure out what it is. As I, as I give you the, the details concerning this object, this thing. Uh, number one is the root of all sin. Because of it, Lucifer rebelled. Because of it, Adam and Eve disobeyed. And since that time, every person has been born with it. And every person has been consumed by it. It stands lurking behind every sin we commit. Number two, it's the nature of all men. We don't learn it. We don't acquire it. We're born with it. And because it's innate, it spoils all our thoughts. It corrupts all our words. And it tarnishes all our actions. We cannot escape it. Thirdly, it's the object of God's hatred. It brought God's condemnation upon Pharaoh, Ahab, and Nebuchadnezzar, to name but a few. It brought God's correction upon David, Uzziah, and Hezekiah, among others. It is such an affront to God that he actively opposes it. Fourthly, it's the cause of most of our problems. It makes us want to be in control causing anxiety, makes us think we deserve better, causing resentment. It makes us think we've been unfairly treated, causing bitterness. It makes us wish people would notice us, causing disappointment and discontentment. It makes us desire to be uppermost, causing envy. And of course it is pride, pride. 
this is my biggest problem in life, and I guarantee it, it is your biggest problem in life, pride. This is our biggest problem, not poor health, and not rebellious children, not broken relationships, not financial hardship, not unfulfilled dreams, not daunting afflictions. The biggest problem, the greatest challenge, the mightiest battle we face in life is our own pride. The first sin we put on at the fall, and it's the last sin we will take off. And pride being what it is, in all of its sinfulness, it makes humility, does it not, as is the title for this morning's sermon, the crown of Christianity. Augustine said, should you ask me, what is the first thing in religion? I should reply, the first, second, and third thing therein is humility. And so that's what we have seen in John chapter 13. That's what we saw uh, last Sunday as we made our way through the first 35 verses. And what I want to do this morning is build on this text and consider with you a humility. How we can defeat that reigning sin in our lives known as pride. To that end, we're going to consider five themes. You have three of them noted on the, insert, on, on the bulletin on the worship guide. You'll see there are three themes, the nature of humility, the cause of humility, and the marks of humility. There are two more. I only gave you three. Now, the fourth is the increase of humility. And the fifth is the joy of humility. And so this morning, by God's spirit, as we consider together the crown of Christianity, humility, I pray that uh, God will impress upon us uh, this most important subject that he would impress upon us this tremendous example of the Lord Jesus as we have it here in John chapter 13. And that he will cause us to deal seriously with that pride that reigns in our own lives. And so five themes, the nature of humility, the cause of humility, the marks of humility, the increase or growth or cultivation of humility, and then finally the joy, or dare I say, the delight of humility. So here we go. Five themes. And I do pray the Spirit of God will help us this morning. So we begin with the nature of humility. What is it? When we throw that word humility out there, when we talk about being humble, what do we mean? Well, a good place to start is with what we don't mean. When we speak of humility, we are not referring to a condition. A condition. A Pharaoh. You remember Pharaoh, king of Egypt. By the time God got finished with Pharaoh, his kingdom was in complete ruins. By the time those ten plagues had passed through, Pharaoh and his entire kingdom was facing social and economic ruin. By the time God was finished with Pharaoh, just about his entire army was at the bottom of the Red Sea. Pharaoh was humbled by God in terms of his conditions and circumstances. And yet Pharaoh remained as arrogant as ever. You see, humility has nothing to do with our conditions in life. Humility has nothing to do with our circumstances. We can lose our job. We can lose our reputation. Uh, We can lose our family. 
Uh, We can lose all sorts of things, our health, and yet all the while remain proud. We dare not confuse humility with humble circumstances or a humble condition. Secondly, humility must not be confused with action. Remember Mordecai, as he's there in the land of Persia, wasn't it? He uncovers a sinister plot to assassinate the king. And the king wants to reward Mordecai. He wants to publicly acknowledge what Mordecai has done. And so he asks Haman to give Mordecai one of his best, one of the king's best robes, to place Mordecai on one of the king's best horses, and then to lead Mordecai throughout the entire city, declaring, thus it shall be done to any man whom the king desires to honor. What an act of humility on Haman's part to do that. As a matter of fact, it was Haman who suggested all those things when the king asked him what should be done for the man whom the king desires to honor. It was uh, was Haman who rhymed off all those things. It is now Haman who leads Mordecai throughout the city declaring, thus it shall be done to the man whom the king desires to honor. What an act of humility on Haman's part. No, no. Deep within, Haman seethed. With rage, overcome with bitterness, overcome with resentment, overcome with envy. We dare not confuse an action with an appearance of humility with actual humility. Thirdly, we dare not confuse humility with a natural disposition. What do I mean by that? Moses stands at the burning bush, as recorded in Exodus chapter 3. God, the great I Am, speaks to him. And he commissions Moses, he commands Moses to return to the land of Egypt, to lead the children of Israel out of Egypt to the promised land. What is Moses' response? Send someone else. I'm not an eloquent speaker I'm not a gifted man. Send someone else. And we might think to ourselves, oh, Moses, you're so humble. Nothing to do with humility. He was afraid to go back there. He simply didn't want to go back there. Far too often we confuse a natural disposition with humility. We confuse timidity with humility. Or we, can, we, we look at someone who is naturally unassertive and we say, oh, that person is humble. That doesn't necessarily have anything to do with humility. A humility is not a natural disposition. Humility is not a condition. Humility is not an action. Humility is not a natural disposition. What is it? You'll find these words right there on the sermon outline from Martin Lloyd-Jones. It means a complete absence of pride. A complete absence of self-assurance. And of self-reliance. It is, in short, an attitude of heart. It is an attitude of heart in which pride disappears. In which all remnant of self-reliance, self-sufficiency disappears. And the individual depends upon and looks to God alone. Where does it come from? That's our second theme, the cause of humility. You remember last week as we looked at John chapter 13, I I mentioned the fact that the, the new commandment 
The new commandment, you are to love one another as I have loved you, it it encapsulates a supernatural love, doesn't it? A supernatural love that flows from a supernatural humility. That in turn flows from a supernatural new birth. When the Spirit of God enters in, when we are converted, when we are regenerated, when we are born again, the Spirit of God enters in, He begins to renew the mind. And we see things that we've never, we, we, we never saw before. We see the truth of who God is. We see the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ. We see the significance of Calvary's cross. We see our own sin. These things begin to touch the heart and grip the heart and embrace the heart. That's the origin of humility. When we think of true biblical humility, it is incorrect to refer to anyone who is not a Christian as humble. Think about it. It is impossible to have a humble unbeliever because humility is supernatural. True, true biblical humility. Not what passes for humility in the world around us, but true biblical humility as exemplified in the Lord Jesus Christ is nothing short of a miracle. It is the work of God's grace. It is produced by God's Spirit working in us, causing us to see that which we never saw before. First of all, as a result, we begin to grasp what the Bible says about God. We see who God is. We see God's excellence. We see God's greatness. As Thomas Watson writes, the stars vanish when the sun appears thought about that. Get up for whatever reason at one o'clock in the morning, for whatever reason, and you walk out the middle of the street and you look up at the glory of heaven above and behold all of those stars, brilliant as they shine in that clear, crisp night sky. But as soon as the sun appears on the horizon, those stars are gone, nowhere to be seen. And so, too, we as creatures, human beings, as we compare ourselves one to another against the backdrop of sin, we shine forth in all our apparent brilliance. But the moment the sun appears, the moment God manifests his glory, we realize just how small we are. We are weak, terribly weak in comparison to God's power. We are foolish in comparison to God's wisdom. We are downright ignorant in comparison to God's knowledge. We are so dependent in comparison to God's sovereignty. Mere mortals, mere dust. As Henry Smith declares, we were earth. We are flesh. And we shall be worms meat. That is who we are in comparison to Almighty God. By virtue of the new birth, we begin to see that. The natural man never sees that. Never in a million years. It is the Spirit of God residing within, illuminating the eyes of our hearts, our understanding, so that we see God for who He is. And coupled with that, we begin to grasp what the Bible says 
about us. The Bible affirms, the Bible makes it clear that we were created in the image of God. And there we have, in that single truth, the image of God, there we have the foundation, the basis of what we refer to as human dignity, don't we? We value every human being. We place inestimable worth on every individual. Why? Because every individual, male and female, were created in God's image. They mirror something of God himself. And that gives us intrinsic worth. That's why we, that's why we are so opposed to the abortion of, of the young. That is why we're opposed to euthanizing the elderly. We, we, we see all individuals in society, we see life as sacred, of great worth. Because all life, all individuals are created in God's image. There we have the foundation of human dignity. There too we have the foundation of human beauty, don't we? As I look out here this morning, I see beautiful people. Not because of your attractive faces. Not because of what you are wearing, but I see true beauty. True beauty is God himself, because in God we find all that is right, all that is good, and all that is true. Therefore, that which is truly beautiful is that which reflects all that is true, all that is right, all that is good. And so it is the image of God in man that is the basis of man's beauty. I suppose that is why the little girl with Down syndrome or the old man with Alzheimer's is far more beautiful than that young lady on the cover of the magazine with the plastic surgery, with the silicon implants, with the airbrushed figure, because you see, that young woman does not reflect what is right, what is true, or what is good. There may be an attractiveness to the eye, but we dare not confuse that with true beauty. God is beautiful. Because all goodness is found in God. All truth is found in God. All that is righteous is found in God. And insofar as we mirror the image of God, all that is good, right, and true, we are beautiful and reflect the beauty of God. So we're not man-haters, are we? Based on the image of God, we subscribe wholeheartedly to human dignity and to human beauty. But the problem is what? That image is marred. That image is corrupted. And that moral image of God has been lost. And now as sinful human beings, as we compare ourselves to God's holiness, what do we see? Our own unholiness. We echo the cry of the Apostle Paul who could say, I am the least of the Apostles. I am the very least of all the saints. I am the chief of sinners. That's a proper self-perception. 
that arises when the Spirit of God dwells within so that we behold and grasp what the Bible says about us. And as we compare ourselves to God's greatness, we see our smallness. And as we compare ourselves to God's holiness, we see our sinfulness. So Bunyan writes, when I saw John Bunyan, as God saw John Bunyan, I did not say I was a sinner. I said that I was sin from the top of my head to the soles of my feet. And thirdly, in addition to grasping what the Bible says about God and what the Bible says about us, we grasp what the Bible says about true greatness. There are a number of historical figures to whom we refer as great. Alexander the Great, Herod the Great, Leo the Great, Frederick the Great, the list goes on and on. There are sports figures whom we describe as great. Sidney Crosby, Steve Nash, Tiger Woods. There are political figures, other historical figures, artists, so many different people, men and women, who we designate as great. When we do so, what do we mean? Well, according to the Oxford Dictionary, to be great is to be much above average in ability, quality, or importance. And that's how we define greatness. That's how our society certainly defines it. How does the Lord Jesus Christ define greatness? Matthew 18:4. Whoever humbles himself like this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. True greatness is found in Childlike humility. True greatness is found in abandoning our self-ambition so that we might find delight in the Lord Jesus Christ. That we must, might trust fully in the Lord Jesus Christ. That we might enjoy Christ without any pretense, without any inhibitions. That we might find our soul's delight in Him as we take our eyes off of ourselves. Find the comfort and delight of our souls in Christ alone. That's the cause of humility. It flows from the new birth. A new birth resulting in a new perception of what the Bible says about God, what the Bible says about us, human beings, and what the Bible says about true greatness. The third theme we're going to consider this morning, the marks of humility. What does it look like? Well, I've coined here, and you'll notice it on the sermon outline, six questions that we can ask ourselves, which lead to our answers to these questions will reveal the, the presence or absence of humility in us. They point to the key marks of a humble heart. First question is this, are we patient? Are we patient when we encounter opposition? How do we react? How do we react when people malign us or accuse us or oppose us? Standing up for what is right, standing up for what is true might be called for. But where there is true humility, there will be an unwillingness to lash out, strike back, counterattack. True humility is a settled submission to God's will. To quote the words of Eli, 1 Samuel 3.18. It is the Lord. Let him do what seems good to him. That is humility. The second question, are we teachable when we hear God's word? Are we willing to be instructed, rebuked, 
corrected? Are we willing to submit to something we don't like? Are we willing to submit to something we don't understand? Are we willing to confess our sin and ignorance? Are we willing to obey? A third question, are we submissive when we experience correction? If someone corrects us, we normally react in one of three ways. You know I do. First of all, we pout. I'm taking my ball and going home. First we stick out our lower lip. Then we say, I'm taking my ball and I'm going home. We pout. We go on the defensive trying to justify ourselves. Or we counterattack, attempting to deflect criticism. Number four, are we gentle when we exhort others? If we lack humility, we will be unsympathetic when it comes to the failures and frailties of others. We will be downright impatient. Number five, are we thankful when we use our gifts and abilities? Do we acknowledge all that we possess as having been given to us by God? Prosperity, talents, family, intelligence, looks. Do we acknowledge all of these things as coming from the hands of God? Terry Johnson declares, your exceptional strength, your exceptional intelligence, your exceptional wisdom are merely superiorly arranged dust. And God did the arranging. What do we have that we did not receive? Absolutely nothing. And so for what reason do we have to be proud? No, are we thankful when we use our gifts and abilities? And number six, finally, are we content when we serve others? For the truly humble, it doesn't matter if they get noticed or rewarded. Their goal is Christ's glory. And their reward is Christ's favor. There are true marks of humility. There are things that cannot be faked. There is the substance of what it means to have a true glimpse of God, a true glimpse of self, a true glimpse of greatness. There is what it means to emulate and to follow the example of the Lord Jesus Christ, the marks of Christ's likeness, the marks of genuine humility. Well, how do we increase such humility? How do we cultivate it? How do we grow? This brings us to the fourth theme, the increase of humility. We've now departed from the sermon outline, but you will find an insert in your bulletin entitled How to Weaken Pride and Cultivate Humility. Did everyone get one of these this morning? It's taken from, I photocopied it from a book entitled Humility, True Greatness by C.J. Mahaney. And perhaps some of you have already read that book. There are a couple of copies out of, of it out there in the, the resource center. And I've, in my study of humility, my reading of books, I have never found anything better than this. As to how we cultivate humility by God's grace in our lives. And he gives here a list of suggestions. Let me read these for you and, and add a comment or two as we go along. First of all, he explains what we, what we must always do in order to grow in humility. We must reflect on the wonder of the cross of Christ. I can't remember who said it. It wasn't me. It was someone else. It is impossible to be proud as we stand at the foot of the cross. It is impossible, complete impossibility, 
to be proud as we stand at the foot of the cross. Because in the shadow of the cross, we see Christ doing all for us. And no merit of our own. We must reflect daily on the wonder of the cross of Christ. We saw that last week in John 13 as the Lord Jesus gets up from the supper. And as he lays aside his garments, as he takes the basin of water, as he proceeds to wash the disciples' feet, this great act of humiliation pointing to an even greater act of humility that he would accomplish at Calvary's cross on behalf of his own, whereby he gave himself completely as an expression of his love for his people. Oh, how that must occupy our thoughts. And from that will flow humility in our own lives. And Mahaney proceeds from that foundation to consider some subjects we should ponder at the, at the beginning of each day. Begin your day by acknowledging your dependence upon God and your need for God. Begin your day by expressing gratefulness to God. A thankful heart, a grateful heart. Number four, practice the spiritual disciplines. That should ring a bell for some of you. We just sat through an hour of spiritual disciplines. Prayer, study of God's word, worship. Do this consistently each day and at the day's outset if possible. Number five, seize your commute time to memorize and meditate on Scripture. Scripture is the vehicle that the Spirit of God will use in pressing it upon our minds and hearts that will, whereby He will cultivate a humble spirit within. Number six, cast your cares upon Him, for He cares for you. And then on to the back, as each day ends, at the end of the day, transfer the glory to God for every success, for every accomplishment, for each step of progress made, give God the glory. And before going to sleep, receive this gift of sleep from God and acknowledge his purpose for sleep. He doesn't stop there. He continues to build for special times of focus. Study the attributes of God. Study God's sovereignty. And it will remind us that we are but dust. Study God's loving kindness and it will overwhelm us with a sense of indebtedness and gratitude to God. Study God's authority. It will cultivate humility. Study His power and wisdom. It will produce humility. Meditate upon God. And coupled with that, study the doctrines of grace. As Paul lays them out there in Romans chapter 8, that God foreknew us. And having foreknown us, He predestined us to be conformed to the likeness of His Son. Not having predestined us, He called us. Having called us, He justified us. Having justified us, He glorified us. From beginning to end, grace. Study the doctrines of grace. Study the doctrine of sin. And then number 12, which has probably already caught your eye. Play golf. He must have a good sense of humor. Play golf as much as possible. I wish Arthur were here to hear that. Play golf as much as possible. What does he mean? It simply means we should expose ourselves to things that remind us of our inabilities. Expose ourselves to challenges and those things which keep us humble. And coupled with that, building upon it, number 13, laugh often. 
and laugh often at yourself. Be real. Be real. And then a few more throughout your days and weeks. Identify evidences of grace in others. Encourage and serve others each and every day. Invite and pursue correction. and Respond humbly to trials. We could add to that list. We could tweak that list. But it's pretty good in and of itself. If we are serious about cultivating humility, if we are serious about mortifying pride within, May God help us to put these things in, in practice. May He help us in particular to, to live in the shadow of the cross. May, may He grant us great and glorious thoughts concerning Himself. May He grant us a keenness and an awareness of, of who and what we are. And may He keep us humble, cause us to walk humbly, drawing near to Himself, whereby the Spirit of God will perform this work. In us. That's the fourth theme, the increase of humility. The fifth theme, the joy of humility, brings us back to John chapter 13. And in particular, what the Lord Jesus says there in verse 17, if you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. If you know these things, in other words, if you know these things, Happy are you if you do them. Satisfied are you if you do them. Blessed are you if you do them. We need to be very clear here. This blessedness of which the Lord Jesus speaks is not some kind of blessedness or happiness that is contingent upon our circumstances and what is happening around us. No, this is a happiness. This is a blessedness. This is a soul's quietness and satisfaction that is rooted in our relationship with Christ. How many of us err in that regard? We're up and down like a yo-yo, depending on what's going on in our lives. And at times it just, it just squashes that joy and that delight in the Lord. John Blanchard, an Englishman, he writes, he gives the following example. He says, several years ago, while preaching in the United States, I stayed in the home of a very successful young couple who were surrounded with the trappings of success and growing wealthier by the day. They were enthusiastic members of a church which majored in an effervescent approach to all its activities, and my hosts seemed to be on a permanent high. As the husband started the car, before leaving for church one night, there was a startled squeal from under the bonnet. It's the hood. When he opened it up, their pet cat was sitting there. Friends panicked, looked, looking decidedly frightened, and minus several patches of fur. Instantly, my hosts were in a frenzied panic. All their confidence and cheerfulness vanished. Frankly, they were in worse shape than the cat. It took several hours before they recovered, and the whole incident was a bizarre illustration of how flimsy and fragile happiness is when divorced from true blessedness. And of the truth, that blessedness is not found in external. True blessedness is not found in externals. It is not found in life circumstances. It is found in the Lord Jesus Christ. That's made clear in the Beatitudes. 
It's made clear in Romans chapter 4 where the Apostle Paul quotes from Psalm 32. He says, blessed, happy is the man to whom the Lord does not impute iniquity. Blessedness, happiness is rooted in a relationship with God. Whereby we are one with the Lord Jesus Christ. Christ has taken our sin upon himself, paid its penalty in full. And he has taken his righteousness. God has taken Christ's righteousness, counted it, reckoned it, imputed it to us. Now we stand in God's presence, roots standing firm upon his grace. As Paul says in Romans 5, we now have peace with God. To have peace means to bring near, to draw nigh, to make one. That the hostility is gone, the threat of judgment removed, the cloud of disfavor disappeared. And we now have fellowship with God and out of that fellowship with God flows humility and out of humility flows a desire to obey. This is true happiness. This is true blessedness. I'll be, I'll, be, I'll be perfectly honest this morning. If I'm not rejoicing this morning, yes, there may be circumstances in my life that are getting me down. There may be troubles on the highway which, which cause fear and anxiety. Yes, there may be sorrow-causing circumstances. I'm not denying it. I'm not diminishing it. But am I rejoicing in the Lord this morning? Do I have a blessedness? Do I have a happiness That come hell or high water, it is unaltered, it is unshaken, because it is rooted in fellowship with God. That is true blessedness. Here the Lord Jesus touches on that, doesn't he? If you know these things, you've seen what I have just done. I have just reminded you that I have washed you. You are born again, that I am sanctifying you. You have just seen me wash your feet, this great display of humility. You know these things. You are one with me. You have fellowship with the Father. And this is the cause of blessedness. And this blessedness will flow out of what? Not merely a knowledge of these things, but a life that is shaped by these things. Knowing them, absolutely no good in and of itself. If you know these things, no, blessed are you if you do that. So let me ask you this morning, unbeliever, are you blessed? Are you truly happy? No, and I can tell you why. It's because you lack The only true fountain of joy in this life, it is the Lord Jesus Christ. A joy that is found in fellowship with him. A joy that is rooted in the removal of sin. A joy that entails peace, the cessation of hostility with God. A joy that is rooted in a transforming grace and the power of the Holy Spirit. And how the Bible, God's word, exhorts you to believe in Christ, to turn to Christ, the one true everlasting fountain of joy. And believer, Christian, let me ask you this morning, 
How blessed are you? How joyful are you in the Lord? If your joy in the Lord is wavering, if your sense of blessedness in Christ is struggling, if this true happiness that is promised to all those in Christ, again, firmly rooted in Christ, is up and down, oh, how you need to draw near to Christ. I'll tell you what's at the root of that unhappiness. It's pride. And how that pride must be dealt with. And how that pride must be mortified. That you might draw near to God and God will draw near to you. Restoring satisfaction to the soul. Restoring that true joy and delight as only He can. Oh, brothers and sisters, if you know these things, let me insert a thought to myself as much to anyone else. If you know these things, big deal. Blessed are you if you do them. Our Father, that is our prayer this morning. We do pray that we might not be mere hearers of the word, but that we might be effectual doers. Oh, what a great and weighty and tremendous responsibility it is to hear your word, to discern the Spirit's voice, and to acknowledge what it is you require of us. And so we pray that by your grace you would help us to take these words of encouragement, exhortation, and admonition to heart this day. And we do thank you and praise you for the Lord Jesus. We thank you that we have a firm rock that cannot be shaken. We thank you that he has cleansed us by his spirit, that he dwells within us, that he continues to wash us by your word. And we do pray that as he performs that great and perfect work in us, that you would stir us on that we too might pursue holiness, that we too might pursue godliness. We pray that you would give us the strength for these things because we are so weak in and of ourselves. We pray that you would give us the wisdom for these things because we are so foolish in and of ourselves. We pray that you would give us the determination for these things because we are so flighty in and of ourselves. And so how we declare our dependence upon you this day Pray that you would come and glorify your name in us as Christ is formed and as we go grow in the grace and knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ, in whose name we do pray it. Amen. Just before Chris comes to conclude with a song, I did bring with me this morning a little prayer taken from a a book I have in the coffee table in our living room, and it was, uh, it was a reading just from a few days ago. And perhaps some of you are going through the same book and notice the same prayer. I'd like to read it for you this morning and make it my own prayer, make it our, our corporate prayer. Listen carefully to these words. Dear Christ, forgive me my pride. So often it takes the place of praise in my heart. I desire to be adequate on my own strength, to be loved by you because of my achievement and admired by people because of my superior performance. I've learned that pride pollutes everything it touches, keeps me from growing spiritually, creates tension in my relationships, and makes me a person difficult for you to bless. It causes a sense of separation from you. 
Today I want to face spiritual pride as the root of this fake sense of religious superiority. Keeps me from humbly admitting my need for your power. If I think I can justify myself before you by my good works, I also can imagine I'm sufficient for the challenges ahead of me. Whenever I become self-righteous, the ears of my heart become unresponsive to the daily call to discipleship. Forgive me for any times I have exalted myself. Heal the insecurity in me that prompts me to tout my talents and triumphs rather than exalting you and encouraging others. Set me free of the bane of self-righteousness and fill my heart with the blessing of your grace. Amen.